Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome to part two of our Hot Topics in uh, CT, the uh, spring edition. I guess it's springtime. So the question is, what's new in hepatic imaging? That's where we left off last time. There were a couple articles I read recently about looking at uh, biliary stents and using CT. And of course, with biliary stent occlusion, there are a number of etiologies. You can have tumor growing into the stent. You can have stent occlusion to non-malignant causes, biliary sludge, hemobilia, retained mucus, or reflux food matter. Obviously, it's very important to understand why from the get-go you actually had um, the stent placed. Now, one of the reasons this, this comes up is how do you evaluate this? Often the stents, if you look at axial imaging, it's very hard to look for transitions. And a good article by Bang talking about curved planum reformation is a useful non-invasive technique that is relatively accurate for diagnosing the cause of biliary stent occlusion and is helpful in planning the therapeutic management of such patients. And uh, Bang went on to say the difference in attenuation value inside the biliary stent between the contrast enhanced and unenhanced, phase, unenhanced phases of CT in the tissue growth group was 27 and 4 Hounsfield units different in the stent clogging group. So making the point that when you have tumor growing into a stent, it tends to enhance and you do see some differences. So that can be a very, very helpful finding. And uh, they found that the sensitivity and specificity of CT for the diagnosis of tissue growth was 86.7 and 85.7% respectively. Overall accuracy of curved planar reformation images for, of MDCT for diagnosing the causes of occlusion was 86%. So that indeed is pretty, pretty good. So very nice way of doing things. And again, one more time where multiplanar reconstruction, in this case, curved planar reconstruction, can be very helpful. We talk about this looking at the pancreatic duct. We talk about this looking at the common duct. And now when you have stents in place, it's not a great surprise. It would be helpful as well. And we know that's true from all stents. Think about the cardiac stents. Works very nicely there as well. An article by Wangs just recently published in AJR, Intraoperative Ultrasound of the Liver in Primary and Secondary Hepatic Malignancies, comparing that with preoperative MR and CT scanning. And this is a good surgical correlation, and the authors found that for patients undergoing partial liver resection for hepatic malignancies, uh, CT and MRI have an equivalent or higher sensitivity in identifying hepatic segments with malignancy uh, and have a higher predictive value for identifying disease-free segments than does intraoperative ultrasound. And it's kind of an interesting point because remember we always talk about, or some people talk about, intraoperative ultrasound as a gold standard. And in this article, after controlling for patient group and time interval between imaging and surgery, the negative predictive value of CT and MR was higher than that of intraoperative ultrasound. In only eight cases where surgical management changed after intraoperative ultrasound. And when you what does 8 mean, of course? Look down a bit deeper into the numbers. For all 561 malignant lesions, sensitivity of intraoperative ultrasound was 95.1%, compared to 96.8 for 64 slice CT, 94.4% for MR. 64 MDCT was also more sensitive than intraoperative ultrasound in identifying positive liver segments. And again, very nice article showing the success of CT in this scenario. And again, you can see out of this 561 cases, that's 
only eight cases with surgical management changed after intraoperative ultrasound. So intraoperative ultrasound does have its value in many cases, but now when you're looking at high quality CT or MRI scanning, it's not going to pick up surprise lesions. Okay, so very, very important. And it's always good to have numbers to be able to uh, look at things very specifically. Okay, what else? There's an, a couple articles about acute cholecystitis. In this article, Lessons Learned from Quality Assurance, Errors in the Diagnosis of Acute Cholecystitis on Ultrasound and CT by Brooke, made the point that an important pitfall in the diagnosis of acute cholecystitis is lack of recognition of gallbladder wall edema on CT. A relaxed gallbladder provides important evidence against the diagnosis of acute cholecystitis. Intensive care patients with sepsis often have no specific signs for diagnosis of acute cholecystitis, making diagnosis especially challenging. The point is, when you start seeing perfusion changes by the gallbladder, you have to be concerned. The most important early predictor of acute cholecystitis on CT was found to be pericholecytic increased liver enhancement on arterial phase CT, similar to the rim sign and HIDA imaging. That's the point. When you see perfusion changes, we talk about this all the time. Perfusion changes mean something. When it's next to the gallbladder, you have to consider adjacent inflammation. It's not just an incidental fad, transient hepatic uh, arterial uh, uh, perfusion change. It's not just that. It's an important finding. So again, when you see it, you have to have a high level of suspicion. It also makes the point that often those... Uh, Perfusion changes are often only seen on arterial phase, may not be seen if you're doing late phase imaging. And in terms of acute cholecystitis, just to remind everybody, CT findings, gallstones, wall thickening, distension, pericholecystic fluid, uh, stranding, increased liver enhancement adjacent to the gallbladder, but remember that last one becomes very, very important. Okay, what else? Well, since we're by the gallbladder, let's just move a little bit to the right, to the pancreas, um, a couple of articles written on the pancreas. Some basic stuff that I thought was interesting, talking about complications of Whipple's procedure. Most common complications, anastomotic leak. Hemorrhage is a possibility, particularly off the SMA or hepatic artery. Sepsis, pancreatic co-jejunal fistula, acute pancreatitis in the rem rem remnant gland, and peritonitis. And just some numbers. If you have early hemorrhage after Whipple's procedure, it's typically due to a blowout of the GDA stump. You have bleeding from those uh, drains. That patient has to go to angio right away for embolization. Uh, you know, you could do a CT, but you might want to go directly to angio. Don't waste time. It's a significant emergency. Patients can bleed out. One, two, three. Now, after 24 hours, CT is particularly helpful because there are a number of causes, ulcers, vascular erosion from a pancreatic leak, fistula, pseudoaneurysm, anastomotic dehiscence, and CT is very good in those scenarios. This article by Papula makes the point that hemorrhagic complications occur in fewer than 10% of patients after Whipple's procedure, but account for as many as 38% of deaths. And that's because when these patients bleed, particularly early, it's a very rapid, it's exsanguination. You, these patients bleed very, very quickly. And unless you go up to surgery or you go to uh, the cath lab and you embolize quickly, uh, it can be fatal. And again, bleeding typically occurs from the stump of the gastroduodenal artery, but other sites of bleeding are increasingly recognized. So some comments, sites of bleeding, status plus Whipple's, the GDA stump, 
common and proper hepatic artery erosions, celiac artery erosions, splenic artery erosions, the inferior pancreatic duodenal artery aneurysm, arc of Buhler aneurysms, and pseudoaneurysms. So something to think about. There's a good article coming out in AJR that Pam Johnson wrote with a group at Hopkins, and um, one of the things we talk about is the different surgeries, and we do look at some of the complications from surgery. I mentioned therapy, embolization with coils, glue, absorbable gelatin sponge is typically what needs to be done. Coils, stent grafting, surgery. Usually what you want to do is go directly to the interventional lab and have embolization done as quickly as possible. Okay, very important. Another article I read, which is actually an interesting article. I've noticed a lot of articles recently are copying what Karen Horton did last year when we talked about the 10 most common mistakes we see. We published that in AJR last April. There's a number of articles coming out now that are looking at these pseudo-lesions or uh, causes of uh, false positive, false negative diagnosis. There was an article talking about pancreatic pseudo-lesions, differential diagnosis. And they talked about pseudolesions depending on what part of the pancreas you were speaking, whether it was the head or neck, body or tail. And the fact being that each zone has unique potential pitfalls. Okay, so in the head and neck region, you can be fooled by unopacified or unenhanced duodenum. You can be fooled by diverticulum of the duodenum. Tumors that simulate pancreatic masses, we talk about gist tumors of the stomach or duodenum. Adenopathy, particularly metastatic disease from colon cancer, can simulate a pancreatic mass. Common bile duct lesions, including colodocal cysts. And occasionally an annular pancreas. Good thoughts. In the body of the pancreas, tumors off the posterior gastric wall, duodenal tumors, particularly third portion of the duodenum, and pseudocysts can all be problematic. And the tail of the pancreas is one of the most problematic. We talk about left adrenal lesions. We talk about small bowel tumors, particularly tumors um, of the jejunum. We talk about splenules, which can be intrapancreatic as well. Uh, we talk about gist tumors from the stomach, retroperitoneal sarcomas, or lymphangiomas. We talk about those uh, as all distinct possibilities. And um, so it's something to think of something that we all make mistakes, splenules, there's an article by Satomi Kawamoto coming out really looking at some of the difficulty in distinguishing splenules or accessory spleens from um, neuroendocrine tumors. It can be exceedingly difficult and we have some strategies that look into this process. There's also a recent article and this article is really good because you probably haven't read it yet. This is in your May uh, radiology but I got it early. I pay an extra five bucks a month to get it early. No, just joking. Uh, the prevalence of isoattenuation, isoattenuating pancreatic lesions differed significantly according to tumor size and cellular differentiation. Most small isoattenuating pancreatic cancers showed secondary signs. Now, what this article is focusing on, people have written articles lately talking about isoattenuating pancreatic adenocarcinoma, how you could miss them. This article makes the point that sometimes it's hard to see a small pancreatic lesion, but you do have secondary signs, and so you should not miss it. Now, of course, the isoattenuating lesions are the smallest lesions, okay, typically under two centimeters. But, and, and what's interesting is these tumors had a different um, pathology. Uh, the prevalence of isoattenuating pancreatic cancers was higher among well-differentiated tumors than among moderately differentiated and poorly differentiated tumors. So these well-differentiated ones are the ones that are most difficult. But 
the majority, 88% had secondary signs, duct dilatation, contour abnormalities. And it's a great quote because something we've said before at Hopkins many times. John Cameron makes this point. You see a pancreatic duct and it's cut off and it's dilated. There's a reason. Yes, you can have a stricture, you can have old trauma, but the bottom line is you got to prove that there's nothing there. The onus is on you. And this quote by you in the detection of ductal dilatation with an abrupt end or contour changes on CT should be interpreted as an indication for further imaging. If you don't see a cause for it, of course, such as MR with MRCP, endoscopic ultrasound, or PET. We typically end up going directly to endoscopic ultrasound. But whatever you do, you have to do something. Again, it's a theoretical problem and you need to be careful, but the majority of cases you will recognize the tumors and when you change the windows, when you look at multiphase acquisition, it's typically not so much of a problem. Okay, what else? Let's do one more area and we'll take a break. What's new with colon cancer screening? Are there any new developments in virtual colonoscopy? In fact, there are a bunch of articles, particularly in May radiology. So just a couple points. Why do you do colon cancer screening? The prevalence of adenomas in the general population is 30 to 50 percent, increases with age. The majority of adenomas are under a sonometer, and the likelihood is about 1 percent that they may contain invasive cancer. And only about 1 to 3 percent of adenomas ever progress to cancer. Size, of course, you can see is critical. Look at that under 1 cm, because adenomas over 1 cm go from under 1% to a 10% chance of containing invasive cancer and a 25% of changing to invasive cancer over 20 years. Approximately 8% may undergo malignant degeneration within 10 years. And so when you look at colorectal cancer, you talk about risk categories. You talk about average risk, moderate risk, those are patients who are first degree relative with a history of adenoma or carcinoma, a personal history of adenoma, carcinoma, and then high risk, which are, you know, familiar polyposis, history of UC or Crohn's. And then a couple quotes, this quote by Yee, in, in 2008, the American Cancer Society guideline for colorectal cancer screening was revised jointly with the U.S. Multi-Society Task Force on Colorectal Cancer and the ACR to include virtual colonoscopy every five years as an option for the average risk patient. And here's the ACR appropriateness criteria on colorectal cancer screening. And here's their summary statements. CT colonography has emerged as the leading imaging technique for colorectal cancer screening. Uh, it remains an imaging test that's appropriate. Uh, double conscious barium enema can also be used. But again, no one knows how to do double contrast barium enemas anymore, unless you're at the University of Pennsylvania. CT colonography is the preferred test after incomplete colonoscopy. Imaging tests, including virtual colonoscopy and barium enema, are usually not appropriate for colorectal cancer screening in high-risk patients with hereditary non-polyposis colorectal cancer and inflammatory bowel disease. So, and, and again, of course, the reason is, is with colitis and colon cancer, risk increases after the disease is present for 8 to 10 years, and the risk increases with more extensive disease. The best estimates of risk are 5% after 10 to 20 years of disease and 9% per year thereafter. So it's a very, very high risk. You need to go in there with colonoscopy because biopsies are necessary in screening these patients for dysplasia. Virtual colonoscopy is not used, but classic optical colonoscopy is what's needed. Okay, very, very simple. Now, 
There are a few other articles written the last few months that are indeed important. There was an article by Moad making the point, looking at average risk patients, they preferred virtual colonoscopy. And many of these patients, the reasons they preferred it were convenience, recommendation, perceived safety. And almost one-third of these patients, in fact, a bit more than one-third, would have foregone screening if virtual colonoscopy was not available. So again, one of the things to look at is personal recommendations. So it's very important that uh, the radiology community get this information out to the public so they can actually know about it. If you're waiting for the endoscopist to tell the patients, it's not going to happen all that quickly. And again, just some numbers among the 57 patients who had both procedures, 95% preferred virtual colonoscopy. Okay, very good. Now, one of the comments about virtual colonoscopy that tends to be a criticism relates to the problems of extracolonic findings. That we do a CT scan, we find something in the liver, a spleen, it's a low-dose study, it's non-contrast. What do you do? Does it add cost to the system? Uh, the answer is it, it does, but it's not d definitely a negative. Here was an article, 2277 patients had virtual colonoscopy, 46% had extracolonic findings, the majority were insignificant, uh, but the significant findings resulted in 280 radiologic procedures and 19 surgeries for additional cost of $113,179, which was $50 per patient. So it really wasn't significant numbers, but if you're screening, uh, you've saved many lives, so it's not always a negative. This article by Verapen. Uh, virtual colonoscopy increased the odds of identifying high-risk lesions by 78%. A virtual colonoscopy should be considered an alternative to optical colonoscopy um, for colorectal cancer screening or as a one-time procedure to identify significant treatable intracolonic and extracolonic lesions. And the point they made in this article was that seven high-risk lesions were identified. Six were extracolonic malignancies and one was a large abdominal aortic aneurysm. So the point here was, when considering extracolonic findings, you put it all together in the virtual colonoscopy, uh, it increased the odds of identifying high-risk lesions by 78%. So again, this goes back to the issues with screening CT in general. You do find lots of information. The key is when you pursue things that aren't important. A key thing we've spoken about uh, is the people who read the overreads need to be careful not to overread the overreads. Do not call every little ditzel, cannot rule out, advise this, advise that. So again, it's being able to have experience. Okay, what else has been written? One of the questions that often comes up at meetings, if you're doing virtual colonoscopy, should you do 2D or 3D reading? An article this month by Hara showed that the reader's preference for interpretive method, be it 2D or 3D, had no effect on CT colonographic performance, that for CT exams with polyps 6 millimeters or larger and 10 millimeters or larger, the sensitivity and specificity, respectively, were not significantly different in readers with a preference for primary 2D, a preference for primary 3D, or preference for both 2D and 3D were compared. Okay? Very straightforward. So just get really good at one way, whatever you're most comfortable with, just do that. Last thing to comment on, are there any recent reports on the accuracy of virtual colonoscopy versus optical colonoscopy? 
glad you asked that question. Perry Pickard, this month in radiology, makes the point CT colonography is highly sensitive for colorectal cancer screening, especially when both cathartic and tagging agents are combined for bowel prep. Given the relatively low prevalence of colorectal cancer, primary CT colonography may be more suitable than optical colonoscopy for initial investigation of suspected colorectal cancer, assuming reasonable specificity. And his numbers were, in doing a meta-analysis, it was an overall sensitivity of 96.1%. And he looked at uh, 49 studies, 11,151 patients, cumulative colorectal cancer prevalence of 3.6%, sensitivity to CT colonography was 96.1%, no heterogeneity was detected, no cancers were missed at CT colonography, when the prep was uh, was good, that means cathartic and tagging agents were combined. The sensitivity of optical colonoscopy for colorectal cancer derived from a subset of 25 of these studies was 94.7%. So actually, uh, virtual colonoscopy was better. So again, uh, very good data, May Radiology 2011, showing you why virtual colonoscopy should play a major role in colon cancer screening. Okay, what else? What's hot in GI? gastric imaging. Wow, usually nothing's hot in the stomach, but there is some stuff being written, and let's talk about that in part three. And we'll see you back here in 15 minutes. See you then. Bye.